You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. After you're done greeting thy brethren and thy sister, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 11? Did you know that Sunday School, we take things by topic per month? And this month we've been studying the book of Hebrews. It's one of my favorites. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to jump around in this chapter, and so you'll have to pay very close attention. But I know you can handle it, because you are the Mill Sunday School. You can handle a lot of things that other people could not. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about what faith is. And it begins with the definition. I'm going to read it three times, because it's just that cool. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. I'll say it again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. And then a third time, then you have it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And then I'm going to skip to verse 5, where it says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. That's kind of a cool story. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Skip to verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And then in verse 11, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him him faithful who had made the promise. And then skip all the way to verse 17. Once again says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This is a cool one. He who received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did raise, receive Isaac back from the dead. Verse 20 says, by faith. Everybody say, by faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his When his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 29, are you with me? Of course you are. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on the dry land. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Verse 32 says, what more shall I say? And then he lists a bunch of more people. And then the continuation, the conclusion in verse 39, look at this. For we are all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You know what that is? The promise? It's Jesus Christ. All those people. You know that this, this chapter is called the Hall of Faith? Not to be confused with the Hall of Fame, 
but the hall of faith. Have you heard that before? It's a really sweet whole chapter, and I skipped around a lot. I, your homework assignment, if you want one, is to read all of Hebrews chapter 11, because it's sweet, because it's amazing, because it says that all these people, by faith, did all of these great things. By faith, they did these acts. And then God later on made them perfect with us by the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. Pretty sweet, don't you think? Let's just pray and invite God here. Jesus, we invite you here. God, would you open our hearts, open our minds to receive more of you, Jesus? Teach us through your word, through the book of Hebrews, what you want us to know about how faith works. And God, we're just so honored to be in here. We're so honored to be in the midst of other people that love and enjoy learning about your word. And we just love you and we praise you. And everyone screamed. It was pretty good. Welcome to the Mill Sunday School. If you've never been to the Mill Sunday School before, that's crazy. I don't know what you've been doing on Sunday mornings. But um, I joke around that we are the nerds of the mill because we are the people that like to go a little bit deeper into the Bible, a little bit deeper into church history kind of stuff, a little bit deeper than a sermon. And so it's going to be kind of teachy this, this morning. Are you okay with teachy stuff instead of preachy stuff? And the whole difference is, of course, the presence of a whiteboard. If there's a whiteboard, it's teaching. If there's no whiteboard and it's in your church, then it's preaching. That's the difference. See, that's the first lesson you get this morning. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of cool. Did you know that um, today is the last Sunday of August? Everybody say, oh. But next Sunday will be September. You know what the new topic is? No one knows this yet because it hasn't been printed or published or anything. The topic is Old Testament history. Yes. So if you liked all those stories that I just read about Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, uh, you'll, we'll get into that next month. All of next month, Old Testament history. Turn to your neighbor and say, I can't wait. I know, because that's what you're thinking. <clears throat> all right, in your notes is a little opportunity for you to write down some review notes. Um, this is what we've been going over, because all of August, we've been talking about the book of Hebrews. Who was the author of the book of Hebrews? Someone in the posse of Paul, is how, I, is how I talk about that. Because if you look at chapter 13, it's, it talks about Timothy. And it says, verse 23 of chapter 13, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him um, to see you. And so, that's, that's cool. He's been released. I don't know what that's talking about. But, so we know that the book of Hebrews was probably not written by Timothy, unless he's like, greet Joe when he comes and sees you. That'd be silly. Who does that? Um, so we know that it was someone in the posse of Paul and Timothy. It could have been Paul himself. We don't know. It could have been Barnabas, Apollos. Those are some other names to be thrown out. Someone that was very, very, very um, educated and knowledgeable in the Old Testament, obviously wrote the book of Hebrews. Someone that was very knowledgeable in the ways of the, of the law and the Old Testament. And someone, a Jewish person that was a Christian, wrote this letter to, who's the audience of the book of Hebrews? Do you know? Jewish Christians, not just Jewish people, but probably Jewish Christians meeting at churches. This letter was received by them. And so one of the main points of the book of Hebrews, if you're writing down main points, would be that the book of Hebrews is written to, to Jewish people, Jewish Christians, to encourage them in the faith, to tell them, why would you ever go back to the Old Testament and the old law? Because Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. Christ has fulfilled the old law. You've been waiting this waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. Here he is. His name is Jesus. 
Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to trying to fulfill the law by killing goats and sheep as sacrifices. But by faith, believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the whole purpose of chapter 11. Would you like to hear a story about faith? If you don't, we could do something else. I know you do. You like stories. You're just being shy. <clears throat> when I was in high school, I took a physics class. Anybody take high school physics? It was, it was one of my favorite classes. The teacher was really cool. The teacher was a Christian, but it was a public school setting, and so you always kind of got to be careful as a teacher to not like just start preaching Jesus because then you might get kicked out of your, your job because you're not supposed to do that. It's just inappropriate, really. It's not church. It's, it's public school. But this teacher was a born-again Christian, and he would always kind of work faith or some kind of good and evil or some kind of belief into the lessons. And so we were learning about the law of the pendulum. You know what a pendulum is? A thing that like swings, you know, like a, like a string and a ball, and it, it just swings back and forth. And one of the laws of the pendulum says that if, if it starts here and swings out and comes back, will it come back to the same place? It'll come back to a little bit less than the same place because of friction and other physical laws about the properties of the pendulum. And so we, we learned all the math behind the pendulum. We were like, oh, yeah, the pendulum theory, this is so cool. Uh, the laws of the pendulum say that it'll never come back to exactly where it was before. It'll come back a little less and, and maybe microscopically less, but it will come back less because of friction and stuff like that. So we went over these laws. And then Mr. Edwards, the physics teacher, says, who believes in the law of the pendulum motion? And of course, Charlie, the class, crown, the class clown, jumps up and says, I believe in it. And, and then Mr. Edwards says, OK, let's test that theory. So somehow, he is one of those crazy kind of teachers. All science teachers are kind of crazy, right? You know what I'm talking about? He like goes around to the back of the room, and he pulls out this ladder, sets up the ladder, crawls up into the ceiling, you know, like, the ceilings that you can remove the panels, crawls up in there. And he's gone for like a minute. He comes back down with a bowling ball and this long cable that hung from the ceiling all the way down to like right here, right? And he says, okay, Charlie, class clown guy, you're going to test your faith in the pendulum motion. And so he pulled it back and had Charlie stand against the blackboard. Charlie's here. <laughs> he took the bowling ball and pulled it all the way back. It was like a 15-pound, like big bowling ball and held it right up to Charlie's nose. And Mr. Edwards was one of those teachers that was crazy enough to let someone get hurt. <laughs> he really was. The, a previous year, he had these two red bricks, uh, you know, like a red brick, like five, 10-pound red brick. And he would, he would nicely just toss the red brick to you, and you would catch it. But you didn't know that the other red brick that looked identical was actually made out of foam. And so as he was throwing the heavy one, the real one, right as you were catching it, he would throw the... <laughs> He would throw the foam one at you. And, and the year before, <laughs> the year before, the kid like dropped it on his pinky and like broke his pinky, that pinky then it fell off and broke his toe, the, the heavy one, because he was trying to, because he thought Mr. Edwards was going to throw a real brick at his face. And so, and so here's Charlie. Here's Charlie holding the, the bowling ball up to his face. And, and we, go, we once again go over the law of the pendulum motion and Mr. Edwards says, Charlie, do you believe in the law of the pendulum motion, that it will not come back and hit your face? And Charlie says, yeah, I believe. <laughs> so he lets go of it, right? He's up against the blackboard. Can't go anywhere except for, you know, to run away. And it goes all the way out, like maybe 10 feet down, 10 feet back. And the whole 20 feet all the way back comes back to Charlie. Does he stand there? 
No, he gets scared to death. He's like, oh, heck no, I ain't standing there. I'm not going to hit me in the face. Mr. Shepherd's ain't going to let me hit me in the face. <laughs> and he makes this big scene. And then Mr. Edwards says, well, you don't believe in the law of pendulum motion. And Charlie's like, yeah, I guess I, guess I don't. I got scared. And so Mr. Edwards says, who believes in the law of pendulum motion? A bunch of people raise their hand. Mr. Edwards picked on a girl. A girl comes up, does the whole thing again. She lets go. It goes all the way out, all the way back, and she didn't even flinch. She just watches the bowling ball come within inches of her face, within inches of smashing her skull, and then it goes back. And of course, the whole, the whole class cheered, enchanted for this girl because she actually believed in the law of the pendulum motion. And I think that's kind of the way in which faith works. Faith works by us being tested. Did Charlie really believe in the law of pendulum motion? No, because he he if he really believed in it, then he would have just let it come back. And this verse right here in, in Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And sometimes atheists or agnostics, you know what an atheist or an agnostic is? An atheist, there's a little bit of a difference in definition. An atheist is a, is a person that does not believe in God. Their faith is rested and lies in the, in the faith that there is no God. That's an atheist. An agnostic, you know what that means? It's someone that doubts the existence of God. There's a subtle difference between doubting and believing that there is no God, atheist versus agnostic, but they're, they're very similar. And they, they would both criticize sometimes Christians and Christianity for believing in blind faith, for having faith in something that they cannot see. And part of that is true. Part of the, the fact of the matter is, is that as Christians, we do have faith in something that we cannot know for certain. We do have faith in something that we cannot see. I mean, that's the definition, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But I would make a distinction and say that it's not just blind faith. I would say that there's a lot of evidence that the, for the Bible being true. There's a lot of evidence for the, what Jesus Christ said for that being true. There's a lot of evidence for there to be a God of this world that loves us and created us and kind of works in things. There's a lot of evidence for miracles and things like that. There's just a lot of evidence for the faith that we have in Christianity. Do you agree? I would agree. And so I would kind of make a distinction that, well, we have faith, but it's not like dumb, blind faith that an atheist might accuse us of. I've heard atheists accuse Christians of, oh, they just believe in God because it feels good to them. There's no evidence. I believe there is evidence. And so there's this, um, have you ever heard of an African impala? Have you? It's like a little deer thing that has these like, curly horn things. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, you do. You've seen National Geographic specials just as much as me. I know you're nerds just like me. Don't sit there and pretend you're not. So the African Impala is like this little deer thing that lives in Africa, and he could jump 10 feet tall, 10 feet high. <laughs> you know how high a basketball hoop is? How many, I'm just interested, I'm curious, how many guys could, or girls could dunk a basketball? One, two. That's it? Just two guys? A basketball hoop, by the way, is really, really tall. Ten feet is really tall. And these little African impalas can not only just jump up and touch the net, they could, if they wanted to, jump over the hoop itself. Can you imagine Michael Jordan doing that? <laughs> It'd be like Teen Wolf. <laughs> some, of you, some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so these little African impalas can jump ten feet tall. They could jump 30 feet. I don't even know what 30 feet is, but that's a really long distance. 10 feet by 30 feet. That's really high. But if you ever go to a zoo and see them, they're enclosed. They're a fence. 
They're fenced in or walled in by a little wall that's three feet tall. You know why? Because they can't see through it. They can't see through the other side and know that there's ground on the other side. So they don't have the faith. They're just dumb and polished. They don't have the faith to, to know that they could jump 10 feet tall. I mean, they could just jump over the ceiling if they wanted to and 30 feet across. They, they don't know that they could do that because they can't see it. Where's the faith of the Impala, right? That's what I keep saying. I'm like, why can't they just jump over it? I mean, if you, if you see them, they're like in, you could put them in a petting zoo and have them with the other little, little tiny goats and stuff that can't jump over the wall. But these Impalas could. And so, so it's kind of like just this faith in that, why stay on this side of the fence doing dumb things in order to be saved? Do you know that salvation does not work by, by taking a trip to Mecca? Did you know that salvation does not work by owning a gold little figurine and praying to it? Did you know that salvation does not work by putting red dye on your forehead? Did you know that salvation does not work by bowing down to temples that you can see? Salvation is about jumping over the fence, having faith in a God that did the work for you. That's what it's all about. Because you're perfectly capable. That African Impala, perfectly capable of jumping over the fence, perfectly capable of jumping over a 10-foot fence. And yet, they, I mean, if it was see-through, they would jump over it. They'd go running around the city having a good time. But instead, a little tiny wall, just because they can't see it, they can't jump over it. They're silly, don't you think? I think so. <clears throat> have you ever heard of Mother Teresa? Of course you have. She, uh, she passed away about 10 years ago in 97, and uh, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1978. And um, she... Uh, she lived in India, in Calcutta, and she worked for a hospice program. The hospice program, in, in English, the house that she worked for was a house called um, Home for the Dying. And so people that had terminal diseases, that means they were, they were going to die, would come and be with Mother Teresa and be cared for, whether it was a couple months or a year. They could come to the very poor people that had nowhere else to go. They could come and be cared for as they were dying. And Mother Teresa, I mean, I mean, you all know Mother Teresa because she's nationally, internationally known for her works, for her good things, right? But her salvation did not rest upon the good things that she did. Her salvation rested in the fact that Jesus Christ did the work for her. Her salvation was fixed through Jesus Christ. And that gives me a lot of hope because I don't think I will ever, or maybe, maybe, maybe not, any of us in here will ever be internationally known like Mother Teresa for our good works. I mean, it's very, very possible that some of us might be that famous and well-known for our international, you know, good things that we do for society. But Mother Teresa, I mean, none of us in here are Mother Teresa, right? But we are all, it gives us a lot of hope that we are all capable of having salvation because it's through the work of Jesus Christ, not in the work of, um, of what we can do on our own. It doesn't say, it says, the faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so today we're going to talk about how faith and works play together and, and are needed. Faith and works are needed, but it's all by faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's all by faith. <laughs> um, look at, uh, if you want to turn, you can. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 in just a second. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 talks about sacrifices and I should back up and say that uh, I think it was two weeks ago that we talked about the high priest. There's high priests in the Old Testament, just priests in the Old Testament. And we talked two weeks ago about their job description. How their job description was if, if, if the Israelites, as, as they sinned, they would bring sacrifices to the priests 
and the priest would kill the animal, whether it was a bull, a lamb, a sheep, a goat, or a dove, or any other animal that was acceptable as a sacrifice. The priest would cut it, kill it, and blood, and take the blood and put it on the altar, and, and the person that wanted their sins to be atoned for would take that animal, kill it, watch it being killed by the priest, and then their sins would be atoned for. That's kind of how it worked back then. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that that's not really how it worked. It's, it was more in the faith of the person bringing that animal to be sacrificed than the actual animal being sacrificed. Let me prove it to you if you're a little confused. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 says, oh, let's see, to, but those sacrifices, talking about the sheeps and the goats and the, and, the, and the cattle and the doves, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as this person, let's just take a hypothetical person in the Old Testament. They're, they're, they have a bunch of cows. And back then, cows was like the money. You know, you didn't have paper money or credit cards back then, right? Did you know that? It's a little, it was a little different back then. I'm sure you knew that. Um, and so you had a bunch of cows. And with a bunch of cows, you could buy a house if you wanted to. I mean, that's how important a bunch of cows were. It was like the cash money, the cow. And so you might have been taking, taking care of this little calf since you were a kid. You might have t- held it in your arms and like, oh, it's a little baby calf. It's a little cow. And you like just carry it around on a little leash and, you know, you're hanging out with your little cow friend. And, and towards, you know, as you become an old man, you realize you need to make sacrifices before the Lord. And so you take this cow that you might have known since you were a kid. You take this cow that was maybe spotless, maybe worth lots and lots of money. Maybe in our way of thinking, worth thousands of dollars. Like maybe like taking your car, you know, a cow, maybe, maybe similar in value. I don't know. And so you take this cow, worth a lot for sure. And you take this cow and you give it to the priest on behalf of your sins and the priest kills it. The priest kills it and then burns it for the sacrifice of your sins, for atonement. And yet this verse, Hebrews 10, 3, says that those sacrifices never made perfect those who were being sacrificed for. Do you see it? And so what was the deal? Everybody say, what the heck? Why was it needed to be done? It was needed to be done because it was an act of faith. Because it was an annual reminder of sins. Because then it says in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so it was by faith in the fact that God was doing the work. In faith that you were sacrificing something, but that God himself was going to do the work. And that's what Hebrews 11.1 is all about. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Have you ever thought about how people are saved in the Old Testament? Some of you have. Have you thought about it? Because, I mean, how are we saved now? We're saved by Jesus Christ, right? But what about Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and all those cool guys that were in the Old Testament that came before Jesus? How are they saved? Think about it for a second. It's crazy, don't you think? Let me draw a chart for you, a little timeline. Uh, let's see. Here's, here's a line. We'll call it a timeline. <clears throat> here's us right now. Middle Sunday school, chilling at our tables. There's a table. That's us. Here's a little broken line, and then here's a cloud and a cross on it. You know what that symbolizes? It symbolizes Jesus' second coming, and, and this, this jagged line means that we don't know when. You realize that, right? If someone ever says, hey, guess what's happening next month? You're like, well, you better not say Jesus is returning, because no one knows. It says clearly. 
it says clearly in the Bible that no one knows. And so you can't know. Let me move this over here so you can see. Uh, and then, Okay, so here's, here's us, Sunday school, the table. Here's uh, Jesus and his first coming around uh, 33 A.D. And then here's, like, uh, the beginning. And then here's, uh, this is a picture of, like, that's Noah on a boat. Uh, here's Abraham. He's got a knife. He's killing. He's about to kill. He didn't really kill his son, Isaac. Do you see that? This is just a little timeline for you. So these people, this might be very helpful for you, by the way. It's, it's a cool drawing, I know. But this, the idea behind it is, is pretty, pretty sweet. So we're all in the Mill Sunday School looking back to the cross, saying we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But these people, the people in the Old Testament, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, uh, all the dudes, all the dudettes, Sarah, you know, all the dudes and dudettes in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to a coming Messiah. And I think that as they looked forward in faith, they, they were saved by faith. They weren't saved through their good works. They weren't saved through those sacrifices of the cattle and the bulls and the rams and the lambs. They were not saved by those things. They were saved by their faith in what God would do for them. And so I really see it as them looking forward in time to the blood of Christ. Have you ever thought about it that way? I think it's cool. I mean, we look back and say, Jesus has come. His sacrifice was made. But maybe people in the Old Testament said, and I think they did. And there's verses that say that they're looking forward to a coming Messiah, a new covenant, a time when the sins will be taken from human, humankind. And so they were looking forward. And this verse in Hebrews that I read, the last verse in Hebrews chapter 11, says, uh, verse 39, if you want to look at that, Hebrews 11, 39, said that these were, the, meaning these people, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, uh, were, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so I really think that verse is talking about just this, that people looked ahead in time through the work of God, and they were saved through the work of God, not by the work of their own um, I guess their own cool things that they would do, like the sacrifices, not being good enough. You can't be good enough for God because God is perfect. Did you know that? Of course you did. You knew that. I mean, he has to be perfect. It's, can you be perfect? Not really, but through Jesus and his work on the cross, you can be perfect. And so that's how faith works. If you look up uh, howstuffworks.com and type in faith, <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I haven't done it. You'd probably, if you, if, you, if you wanted the real answer, it'd be, well, faith works by trusting in Jesus Christ for the, his work on the cross and not in your own works. That's how stuffworks.com. Actually, I don't know. I shouldn't say that because then somebody will go look it up and it's probably all about like Buddha or something weird because uh, that's not how it works. Look at, um, I want to confuse you real quick. Is that okay? Can I confuse you? Because you can handle it. You're the nerds of the mill. You can totally handle this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Same chapter, just verse 17. This is about Abraham and how Abraham was a cool dude. But he was cool only not by what he did, but because of his faith. Abraham, uh, let's see, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And that's what this picture is. He's got the knife. Remember that story in the book of Genesis? If you don't, we're going to go over it next month. We'll talk about it a lot and how much it meant to the people at the time and how much it means to us now. 
God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So you see that story. It's all about the author of the book of Hebrews, someone in the posse of Paul, is using Abraham as an example that it's all by faith. Do you see it? Yeah. And so here's where I'm about to confuse you. Are you ready to be confused a little bit? Can you handle it? Turn to James. It's just, it just so happens that James is the next book, so you don't have to turn very far. James t- chapter 2, verse 20. And this is going to be about, so Hebrews was all about faith alone. A- Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Faith alone is what, what happened there. Verse 20 of James chapter 2, just the next book, says, You foolish man. Everybody say, uh-oh. Some reason trouble. Do you want evidence? That faith without deeds is useless. Do you get it? Faith without deeds is useless. And then he uses the same exact example. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. So let me spell it out. If you're not confused enough, let me spell it out for you, because it's very confusing. Abraham is used as an example in the book of Hebrews, faith alone. And then James uses the same exact example to prove that you need faith and works. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm confused. Are you? I am a little bit. But I think there's a mystery between how faith and works is how faith and works works. that can be explained by a, a couple, uh, by kind of the definition of, of what believing really is. Think about it for a second. Do you, need, do you need works? Do you need good things in order to be saved? No, let me prove it to you. Uh, Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, uh, Ephesians, you don't have to turn there unless you really like turning to things. Ephesians 2.8. Some of you might know this verse by heart. Anybody? You're just shy. I know some of you know it. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a, a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Let me read it again so you'll understand. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not even of your, faith is not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by, it's not by works so that no one can boast. And so if someone comes up to you and tells you, hey, you need to go do this, this, and this, and, and be a member of this particular church, and uh, do this, and be good, and come to Sunday school, and do all this stuff in order to be saved, you could point to them to this verse and say, listen, that's not really how salvation works. I like coming to Sunday school. I like being a member of this particular church. I like doing this. I like giving uh, money to church. It's called tithe. I like doing all these good works because my faith is already inside of me. And I think that is the way to explain the mystery of how faith and works interact. Did you hear that? Let me say it, let me rephrase it, because it's, it's so important to understand how faith and works interact, how they work. Faith, if, if it's true faith, will have works that go along with it. If faith, if it's true faith, will have works that accompany it. However, you do not need works in order to be saved. 
Do you see the mystery there? You see the tension between the two things. It's almost as if Charlie is, is over here with the, with the bowling ball attached to his face, not literally, just holding it, and, and he's about to let go. He says, I believe in the, in the theory of the pendulum motion, the law of the pendulum motion. But as it comes back and he gets scared, he moves out of the way. His works proved that he really didn't have faith. Do you see it? And so in the same way, I think as Christians, we believe, we can say, have you talked to people before that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church every once in a while, I believe, but then they really don't act like it whatsoever. Have you seen people like that? Do you know, sadly enough, do you know people like that? That would say, oh yeah, I believe, I'm a Christian, but then they, they just don't act like it. And we as, as other believers are really not called to, to judge their salvation. I mean, we could tell them, hey, you know, th- those, those things that you're doing are not right, but it's, it, maybe it's not up to us to judge their salvation. But I think in some ways we can judge our own salvation and say, if our, if our works, if what we do does not reflect Christ, then, then maybe we're not saved. Not because the works save us, but because the works are needed to go along with a true believing faith. Do you see it? Do you? I'll explain it again, so help me. So faith, I guess if I was to write this down, let's see. Let me write some stuff down. Faith, uh, faith minus uh, works equals not really faith. Not saying that you have to have faith. Not the saying that you have to have works. In, like, like I always think about, the, like whenever we go back and forth on this and someone's like, well, you have to have works in order to be saved. You have to do this or that. I've, I've talked to um, people that are just like, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. I say, well, that's kind of silly because baptism is a symbol of what Christ did, the, of your death in the water and then coming up. You should get baptized, every single one of us, if we believe. It's a symbol of what Christ has done for us, our death and resurrection through Christ. But we don't need to have that. Think about the dude on the cross with Jesus. That's what I always think about. Remember that the thief on the cross with Jesus says, I, says, Jesus, remember me when you're in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you think he got down and got baptized real quick? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't say it. It's possible. <laughs> okay, so faith minus works is not really faith. Uh, and then the other part of that, if, uh, uh, let's see, works plus uh, zero faith equals what? I don't think that equals no salvation. This is, uh, this is for the people that like math. Any math people in here? <laughs> Whew, go math. <laughs> faith minus works is not really faith. Faith plus zero, uh, excuse me, works plus zero faith equals no salvation. That's, that's, it's, hopefully it's easy to kind of see what I'm saying, but um, I don't know that I would ever really write this out and show someone this in order to lead them to the Lord. <laughs> uh, maybe you could. I don't know. If they're mathematical, maybe you could. Um, so the question I want to ask for you, it's kind of a, I think we'll have time. We'll have a little bit of time to discuss this. Do you guys like discussing things? So, so you'll have to be bold in a second when I ask for volunteers to discuss. Um, but the question is, can you lose your salvation? Loss of salvation is how I worded it in the notes. Loss of salvation, question mark. 
I knew a dude when I was in, um, I lived in Utah for three years. He was a dude that um, came out of the Mormon church into the evangelical Christian church that I was going to. It was a really cool independent Baptist church. Awesome church. He came out of the Mormon church and became a Christian, a born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus Christ is the only way, Christian. He made a decision for Christ out of the Mormon church. We're good. Um, and uh, he became a Christian. And, and as we met over these three years, he was very worried about, um, about not doing the things in the Mormon church that is required of him for salvation. If you don't know too much about the Mormon church, they really require, in a lot of ways, for salvation, uh, things like um, the temple deeds, the temple recommends, doing what your bishop tells you to do, tithing to the Mormon church. Um, there's, I mean, there's a whole list of things that you really have to do in order to be a good Mormon. And you have to be, in order to get salvation in the Mormon church, they believe you have to be a good Mormon. And so this friend of mine that became a Christian, um, an evangelical Christian, out of the Mormon church, was always kind of confused and saying, so we really don't have to tithe to the church for salvation? And I said, no, you really don't need to do that for salvation. You do those things because you love God and because you have faith, but you don't have to do them for salvation. And he was always, and there was, along the way, he, he got a kind of negative on Christianity and was saying things like, well, maybe I'll do some of the things that the Mormon church requires me to do. Maybe I'll go to the Mormon temple every once in a while and do some of the things just in case the, the Mormon way is the true way, and I need to take care of some of these works and deeds in order to be saved. Do you see where he's at? He's kind of got a foot in the evangelical Christian side that says, Jesus alone, and he's got a foot in the other side of things, in the Mormon side of things that says, you need to do these certain works in order to be saved. Well, of course, uh, a couple years later, he, he met a girl. The girl was Mormon. He went back into the Mormon church and, and, st- and lives, I think he's still a Mormon now. And so the question is, was he really truly saved and then gave up on salvation through this whole works and, um, works and faith thing? Or was he never really a Christian? I don't know. I don't think it's, it's my decision to judge his eternal soul as if he was, he was or was not truly saved. I mean, it was kind of like Charlie with the bowling ball, right? He was saying, I believe in the pendulum motion. But when it came back to him, he ran away. Did he not truly believe, or did he believe for a little while and then run away? That's the question. The question is, can you, is it possible to lose your salvation? Any ideas? You say yes? How come? Oh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Can you guys hear over there? Sweet. That's good. Veronica, since you talked first, you get a free Mill Sunday School t-shirt. Look at that. Isn't that cool? It's the old ones we used to give out, but they're still sweet, right? <laughs> Veronica gets it. Whoops. Sorry. Um, so she said, by faith, it is the last one ever, by the way. Um, so that's quite something. Uh, Veronica said that if it is possible to lose your salvation by, by what? By turning your back on God and not, no longer believing. For, the pur- for not for the purpose of just fighting and being silly, does someone want to uh, give the other side of the argument, once saved, always saved? Yes, sir. Right. That's good. Now, later on, you guys will arm wrestle, and we'll decide who's really <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, 
Uh, here's, here's the idea, and, and thank you both for sharing your, your perspectives. Here's, here's, how, here's what I think about the matter of losing your... I see lots of other hands, too. It could get a really sweet argument going in here. But I think I, I just want to say this one thing, and that, and that is v- valid to have an opinion on either side. If you're a Baptist and you're part of a... Remember last week we talked about Calvinism? If you're a Calvinist, you would say it's impossible to lose your salvation. If you walk away from it, then you never had it. Right? That's what a, a Baptist Calvinist would say. Perfectly viable, like our friend said. Perfectly viable. A good theological pers- perspective. The other side, the Arminianist side, the more Methodist side would say, it is possible to lose your salvation based not upon works. And what Veronica said, what she did not say that if you're a Christian and you start doing some bad stuff, that you lose your salvation. That would be silly, don't you think? How many of us have messed up since becoming a Christian? Pretty much all of us. Not, I guess not all of us, but pretty much all of us have. Um, and so did you lose your salvation when you made a mistake? Do you lose your salvation like losing your keys? By the way, I've never lost my keys. Never once. I've had this key since I've only had one car in my life, my sweet Ford Escort that's, uh, that's uh, parked in my house. It's a 1990, and I still have the very first key ever for my car. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think that's quite an accomplishment um, in the grand scheme of things. And so you don't lose your salvation like, whoa, I lost my keys. Where'd they go? Can't find them. I wish I had one of those beeper things so I could get my salvation back. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Uh, you don't lose your salvation based upon works. You know how I know that? Because you don't get your salvation based upon being a good boy or a good girl. You get your salvation based upon faith. And so whether you're from the argument that says you can or you cannot lose your salvation. They're, they're, more, they're similar ideologies than you might think, because neither one would say, oh, you lose your salvation based upon making mistakes and messing up. I think if you're a Christian and you make a mistake and mess up and sin, God gives you a conscience. The Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. And then what do you do? You go and repent and you become right with God. But in that meantime of, of messing up and repenting, I don't think anywhere in the Bible does it say that you've lost your salvation for that time. That's just silly. You don't lose your salvation based upon works. You don't get your salvation based upon works, right? I think that. I mean, the example I gave last week was, was someone falling off the ladder. Did I say this one last, last week? You're, you're climbing up to the roof to paint, and you, you knock over the paint, and then you fall off the ladder, and on your way down, you, you yell out some expletives. You know, you're, whatever you're, you're into, your choice of words. And on your way down, you don't have enough time to repent. So you hit the ground, you break your neck. Do you go to heaven or hell if you're a good Christian and you believe in Jesus? You go to heaven. not because You don't go to hell because you made one mistake that you couldn't repent for before you hit the ground, right? Right? That's just, it's, it doesn't work that way. You don't, you don't lose your salvation based upon works because you don't get your salvation based upon works. That's just the way I think about it. It's a good perspective, don't you think? I mean, it's not my, it's not like I made it up. It's, it's biblical perspective. Let me give you um, the reason why this uh, picture is on the cover. Did you, did you see the cover of the picture? The cover is, uh, does anybody know what that is? What? Yes, it's Notre Dame, the temple, uh, not the temple, the church in uh, Paris, France. Has anyone ever seen it? Wow, more people have seen it than dunked a basketball. That's pretty sweet. 
Notre Dame is this huge temple. I keep saying temple. It's just a church. It's not a temple. It's a huge church in Paris, France. And what's so sweet about it is that it was built in the 1100s. Was that a long time ago? Yes, it was. I mean, old stuff to us living in the United States is like, ooh, if it was built in 1800s, that's old. That's like 200 years old. That's not old. Notre Dame is like uh, 500 years old. I mean, it's 800 years old, right? Am I doing my math right? It's more than 800 years old. It's really old. It's this really old building built in the Middle Ages. And so as, you, as someone would go to build this huge colossal thing, they would start laying the foundation and dig 25 feet below ground and start laying stones 25 feet below the ground. That's pretty low, don't you think? For, I mean, for the foundation of this huge, epic monstrosity of a building, it's pretty huge. And this is way before, like, diesel engines and things that you can, like, sawzalls that you could cut with and, like, before, like, stone shapers. If you wanted to shape a stone to, to make one of those things to make the arch, you know what you had to do? You had to cut it by hand with chisel and, like, sandpaper or something. I don't even know. I mean, how'd they do it? Who knows? They did, I mean, it was, like, ancient. It was, like, Middle Ages. They didn't have any... Uh, power tools or anything cool like that, no sawzaws, no uh, uh, whatever, you know, hammers and nails, they, they were around, but they were building this thing out of stone. And so, here's the point. Are you ready? Sometimes I get a little excited about things. Um, I was watching, uh, that's because I was watching a PBS special last week on Notre Dame. And by the way, this isn't Notre Dame, the university in, uh, uh, where is it, Indiana? But this is the Notre Dame of the Hunchback in Notre Dame. The same dude, same, same uh, building. And so it's this huge building in Paris. And the point is, is that the people, the, the dude that made up the plans and the people that started laying the foundation of Notre Dame never, ever, ever saw the completion. They couldn't. Notre Dame took hundreds of years to make. They could not. The people that laid the foundation had a hope that someday this building would be a great building and be used for worship of God's people. And still standing today. In fact, when I went to Paris with my family, mom, dad, little bro, we, uh, we saw the, the, the Notre Dame and we wanted to go in it to take the tour, you know, do the tourist thing with our cameras and uh, fanny packs and things like that. And uh, we couldn't go in. You know why? Because it was Sunday afternoon and it was being used as a, a gathering. People... Locals were going there for their church. It's still being used today as a church. And so these, these people that laid the foundation, they would never, ever see. Their children wouldn't see the completion. Maybe their grandchildren would see the completion of this temple. That's how long it took to make one of these temples. Their faith was in the fact that God uh, would use this building for his glory. And they were just kind of working out their faith. Kind of a cool image, don't you think? That they wouldn't, and some of you might say, well, what if they got a whole bunch of people and worked really hard like they do on that show, uh, Extreme Home Makeover? Couldn't they have finished it in their lifetime? Still, no way. They could not have finished it in their lifetime. Extreme Home Makeover is sweet because they take this house and bulldoze it and send the people away. It's just seven days, right? A week? And then the whole house is totally redone, and they go, move that bus, and the bus moves, <laughs> and then they see the house. I read this article uh, in preparation for this sermon saying that uh, some of those houses, are, they cut so many corners to make it look good that those houses will last, you know, a, a maybe the rest of the life that people are in there, but they're not going to last more than like 40 or 50 years. They're just going to fall apart because they're structurally, foundationally, so many, so many corners were cut. And there's a big difference between building a house in a week out of wood 
and building a 117,000 square foot church out of marble. Don't you think? Big difference. And it's in a time when there was no power tools. And, and I just I got some facts for you that said um, that the laborers on Notre Dame would work 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. every single day through the summer, take one day off per week. In the wintertime, if they weren't laid off, they would work a mere nine hours a day. That's a lot of hours to put in to work on doing hard labor like that. And so it did not matter how many extra people they got to make the temple. It did not matter how many extra uh, dollars and money they had flowing in to do extra stuff to make the cathedral. There was no way in which the cathedral could be made in a lifetime of the person that laid the foundation. No way. just could not be done. And so the person laying the foundation had to have faith in what they were doing would be completed. We have to have faith that our salvation won't be carried out. by our, We need to do the works. We need to do good things with our lives. But it's never ever by our works that we're saved. It's by the faith that we have that God has done something greater for us. That's the way salvation works. Would you take the hand of the person next to you as we pray and close? God, we just are honored that you did the work for us. Jesus, we are honored that we can have faith in you out of all the ways in which we could have salvation by doing all these weird or crazy things in order to please you as our God. You just said, just believe in me and you'll be saved. And so God, all of us put put our faith in you right now. Jesus, we don't put our faith in our good works. We don't put our faith in the good things that we've done, the things that we've attended. God, we put all of our faith in you and you alone by your work and your death on the cross. And we just thank you so much, Jesus, that it's, salvation is so easy on our part. All we need to do is to believe, and good works will flow out of that belief. That blessing will flow out of that belief. And we just thank you, Jesus, that you've done all the work for us. And we thank you for the book of Hebrews, that your lessons about faith are just so evident. God, so we praise you, and we thank you right now. Everybody said, amen.